I have placed on the pews for each of you a couple copies of a map while we turn to Galatians chapter 1 because it's helpful just for a few seconds to see where Galatia is for those that have not considered the location of the churches that Paul addressed in this epistle that we begin studying this morning. If you are looking at that little map, you can see the large blue of the Mediterranean Sea. The boot of Italy is far to your left, out of sight. You can see down at the very bottom right-hand corner, Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ first preached the gospel, and from whence it went, north to Antioch of Syria. And there's where Paul had his home church and was a member there for many years as he left on his evangelistic trips 1, 2, and 3 from that church. You can see Syria is highlighted and Cilicia are highlighted. Those are the two regions of the Roman Empire that were in that area where Paul first began. And he was sent to the city of Tarsus, if you read Acts chapter 9, And that's where Barnabas gathered him and brought him to Antioch, where he was a church member. You can also see Galatia is highlighted, which is what our modern-day Turkey is. And that's where the word Turkey would be if you were looking at a modern geopolitical map. You can also see Bithynia and Asia highlighted, where the Lord forbid Paul to preach on his first trip so that he would go west and across the strait there into Macedonia and preach to the Philippians. I hope that you can see the large region of Galatia. We're not told much about the individual cities or churches, but this epistle is not addressed to one particular church, but to the churches of Galatia, and that is where they were located. And that's about as much good as that map will do you. By the grace of God, we want to consider... The Epistle of Paul to the Churches of Galatia. And we're going to begin this morning, not in Galatians, but by turning to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, please. And let's get ourselves a little bit of the history that God's given us. In Acts chapter 16, I read these last Lord's Day with an entirely different intent. I want to read verse 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Lord suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. There's the Apostle telling us how the Holy Spirit directed his preaching trips. He couldn't go south into Asia, and he couldn't go north into Bithynia. As your map showed you, he had to go west, and he ends up helping the man and women, Lydia by name, in the city of Philippi, a chief city of Macedonia. But what we want from Acts 16 and verse 6 is this inspired history. We don't care who discovered Bolivia. We do not care about the names of the three little wooden boats that some man supposedly 
named Columbus sailed the ocean blue to come here in 1492. What we care about is inspired history. Columbus and his three ships have no effect on your life nor anyone else's life. If he ever came here, it was by the providence of God anyway, and it was such providence that it didn't deserve a verse in his word. This is inspired history that you ought to appreciate. That the Apostle Paul was directed to specific places and forbidden to preach in other places, and it's by him, the Apostle and teacher of the Gentiles, that we have heard the truth of the Gospel. If you follow the line of historical Baptist churches that came via Wales, if you follow that line, you have to trace us back to the Apostle Paul and his meeting up with Pudens and Claudia in Rome during his imprisonment. We end up with Paul. If you trace ourselves through southern Europe, this is what we're speaking of right now with Turkey and all the way to Illyricum where Paul preached the gospel, which is our Yugoslavia today. And so this history is important. And when we look here, we see the Holy Ghost directing every city that Paul went to, forbidding some on the south, forbidding others in the north, directing him west. But he didn't go west until he had already been throughout the region of Galatia. Let's now turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Acts 16 was evangelistic preaching trip number 2. Chapter 18, verse 23 begins trip number 3. Acts 18, 23. And after he had spent some time there, some time where? Verse 22 tells us, in Antioch, his home church. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. He went back and visited all those churches and strengthened those converts under his ministry on the second trip. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Those which had dwelt in darkness saw great light. God sent Paul to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, notice the wording here about his instruction to the church at Corinth. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Do you know what you can know from this? That the churches of Galatia were first day Baptists, not seventh day Baptists. They weren't seventh day Baptists or seventh day Adventists. They were first-day Baptists, and yes, there are seventh-day Baptists. Shame on them. Because this tells us that the apostle taught the churches of Galatia upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. The day of corporate and public worship in the New Testament is the first day of the week. And that what was what was taught the churches of Galatia along with the church at Corinth. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you listen 
to a Seventh-day Adventist, most of you would be troubled. They sound so good. But if you'll believe Galatians 1, 8, and 9, that if a man preaches any other gospel unto you than that which I've preached unto you, let him be accursed, you would never listen to him. They don't know what they're talking about. They're Old Testament Judaizers. They're neither New Testament nor Christians. Jesus Christ was raised and exposed and revealed and discovered by His apostles on the first day of the week. And that is the Lord's Day. And that's the day that Christians have worshipped Him ever since. The only reason and the only times Paul ever went into a synagogue on the Sabbath day was to get himself an audience, not to help Christians worship. He went into synagogues on the Sabbath day to find Jews, to pull them out of the Old Testament and to bring them to the New Testament, to bring them from the sixth day of the week or the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. And that's what he did with all of them. And that's what we can read in other places. Don't ever be deceived. The Bible's plain enough if you'll trust it and no man. Or a demented woman named Ellen Harmon White that is the founder of that denomination. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. So here Crescens, a minister, companion of Paul, went to Galatia. And there he was helping those churches that we are reading about. And last of all, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. In case the churches of Galatia had not been fully moved by the Apostle Paul, Peter throws his weight into teaching them as well the truth of the Gospel. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And there were elect in all those places, including Galatia. And so both Paul and Peter exert their apostolic authority and knowledge in teaching these elect saints in this place that were being assaulted by false teachers. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Acts 15 so that we can remind ourselves of the problem. The number one enemy of the churches of the New Testament were those that had a superstitious obsession with the Old Testament and Moses' form of religion and wouldn't leave it. They were jealous that there were so many leaving the Jewish faith and following Paul. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, you can see where the Jews would be stirred to envy at the crowds that Paul and the other apostles were getting. They wanted to keep their proselytes in the Jewish faith. They wanted their special breed of men running around the globe that had had minor surgery on their male member. They were jealous and angry when there were inroads being made against that religion of theirs. And so, look what we can read in Acts 15 and verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, 
except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now this is in Antioch. When you look at your map, Antioch is directly north of Jerusalem by several hundred miles. And it says they came down, that is from the altitude of Jerusalem to the sea level of Antioch, which is on the sea coast of the Mediterranean. But the point of this verse is, there were men that came from Judea, out of Jerusalem, that were taught by Pharisees, or they were partially converted Pharisees, that were still holding on to the law of Moses in order to be saved. And here's Paul in his home church, not wise. Not wise to come in and preach, you've got to be circumcised to be saved in Paul's home church. Because Acts chapter 14, the last verse, is the end of his first evangelistic trip, and he's back in Antioch, and there they abode long time with the disciples. And in this first verse, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And this is the point that we want to get firmly in our minds when we open the book of Galatians. There were men that came out of Jerusalem, the capital and center of Judaism, and the worship of the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees that preached that to all these converts being made by Paul and the other apostles, that they couldn't be saved simply by Christ. They still had to keep up circumcision and the law of Moses. So that's what we want to understand when we come to Galatians. Otherwise, you're wondering, what's he talking about? He is fighting these false teachers. These false teachers, in order to boost themselves, as they did at Corinth, so they did in the churches of Galatia, despised the authority of Paul. They put him down as a second generation apostle. He was merely a pupil of the real apostles. And he was so hypocritical in his preaching that at some times he'd preach one thing and at other times he would preach another thing. That he had it in for the law of Moses. That he had despised it. And you know better than all that because Paul said, sometimes I became as those that were without law to those that were without law that I might win them all. And sometimes I was as a Jew to those that were Jews. But he was only doing that in matters of liberty. He was preaching the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, but he had his enemies. And it is a shame that in the earliest days of the New Testament, the greatest apostle already has enemies spreading over a whole region of the world to oppose him. Let's turn to the book of Galatians. Thank you, Lord, for Galatians. You know, the Lord could have given us 2,000 chapters in the New Testament. He chose to give us 260. 89 of those are in the Gospels and do not pertain directly to Gentiles. There's much in there for Gentiles, but they don't pertain directly to us because Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. Paul was our apostle. And so when we look at the 260 and we take out 90, we're down to 170. And we leave the Apocalypse, we get down to 148, and we leave out some of the lessons that were given to the Hebrews and to the strangers scattered abroad. We come to Paul's epistles to Gentiles. We're actually reduced to a rather small number. And somebody might encounter Galatians chapter 1 and say, what is the value of Galatians 1? 
Well, I represent the infinite God of heaven. And He has infinite wisdom in Galatians chapter 1. And He's showing us that His blessed apostle, Paul, had to defend himself against enemies as early as Galatians 1. And I'm sure that as we go through it, we can find some things that will be profitable for our souls. That's our goal. He's going to use the first two chapters to defend himself, the next two chapters to defend his doctrine of justification, and the final two chapters for various duties as he usually, as the course he usually follows in his epistles. The language at times is going to sound Arminian, as it does in Romans, in some places. And that's because Paul had never met an Arminian. He had met Judaizers. And in order to attack Judaizers, he set the law up against faith. And so when he's talking about faith versus the law, he is not talking about faith as an evidence against faith as a condition like we have to reason most of the time because we're combating Arminians and we've hardly met a Judaizer. Although I've already mentioned a denomination of them twice this morning. And that's the Seventh-day Adventists. Those are Judaizers trying to take you back under the law. Of Moses. He's going to use the word faith in a variety of ways. He's going to use the word faith as Christ's faith and obedience to God. He's going to use the word faith as our faith in Jesus Christ, our belief in Him. He's going to use the word faith as referring to Christ Himself, the object of our faith. And He's going to use faith as describing Jesus Christ's religion, the faith of Jesus Christ. In other places, you'll see all four. But let's look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1 and know that right out of the blocks, he's defending himself as an apostle, the likes of which they've never seen. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He wants these Galatian saints to remember right off the bat that he was an apostle, and then he wants to detail how he became an apostle in comparison to how other men became apostles. He is not going to let them despise his office in Jesus Christ. He had the greatest office in the New Testament, and the Bible says that God magnified that office so that no man durst join themselves to them. Acts 5.13 God gave such signs and wonders to the apostles that in Acts chapter 5 no one dared join themselves to that illustrious group because they had power they'd never seen before. And that was God defending His ministers. Not of men. I am not part of the twelve. I'm not of men. I am different. I was one born out of due season as he would say in 1 Corinthians 15. Don't accuse me of being a pupil of them. I'm not of them. I'm not a Matthias that was picked by them. I'm different. I'm not by them. They didn't choose me to be an apostle. The Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father chose me to be an apostle, and he's going to tell us about how that occurred and when that choice was made as we go through the chapter. I want you to be thankful this morning We are Pauline Baptists. We are Pauline New Testament Christians. Paul is our apostle. 
We go to His epistles and we're thankful for them. And we're thankful for what God did through Him. He is not our Savior and He is not our mediator. But He is the preacher of the Gospel that God sent to us ignorant hordes throughout the world. He sent the Gospel to the Gentiles through Paul. And you should look at that verse and be thankful that the teacher of our religion is not a demented woman. It's not a young man that was a peeper in New England named Joseph Smith. It's not Pope Benedict XVI wearing pajamas all day and a Dagon fish hat. It's our brother Paul. And we can read about his conversion and we can read how the Lord turned the world upside down with one faithful man who sold himself out to obey Jesus Christ. He was an apostle not of man, not by man, but by the Lord Jesus Christ and by God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now that right there reminds us of the Gospel because the Gospel is the record that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. And that's a message worth preaching and it's a message worth believing and it's a message worth obeying. But there's more in it than that. The Apostle Paul was not made an Apostle but by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. All the others were made apostles by Jesus Christ in His humility while He was on earth before He was glorified in heaven. But the Apostle Paul was chosen, taught, directed, led, converted, ordained as an apostle by the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Because Acts 9 comes after His resurrection and ascension into heaven, doesn't it? Does it it do that in your Bibles? And God who raised Him from the dead. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ who raised Him from the dead. I wasn't a fisherman picked by Jesus Christ in His humility and taken from my fishing boat while He was here on earth the first time Jesus Christ came from heaven for me on the road to Damascus and made me His apostle. Verse 2, And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. That tells us about those that were sending this epistle, though it's in Paul's name. There were other ministers with him, as we generally read. And it's unto the churches of Galatia telling us that this epistle is a little different, in that it's not to a single church, but to a group of churches in a region about the size of South Carolina, which has many cities and could have many churches. Grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. His typical salutation, two of the most important things that we need in our lives, grace and peace, and both from God and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the way we should speak to each other. This is the greatest greeting that you can give another person. Instead of, hi, how are you? I am fine. You know, greetings. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace, mercy be multiplied unto you. Because grace and peace is what we all need and what we all want. And when it comes from God and it's a blessing from a saint, you're going to receive it. So we ought to speak that way more than we do. Verse 4, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the end of verse 3, we read in verse 4, "...who gave Himself for our sins." that He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God 
and our Father. Oh, what precious words we have right here as Paul introduces this epistle and salutes the elect in the churches of Galatia, who gave himself for our sins. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ was not taken from him by Caiaphas, nor by Pilate, nor by Herod. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ was not even taken from him by God the Father. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ was laid down by his choice. He laid his life down for us. He gave himself for our sins. He chose to lay down his life to suffer the penalty, the pain, the suffering, and the eventual death for our sins. And so the apostle putting himself together with these elect saints, says Jesus Christ died for us by saying our sins. And we've all, we already know that the saints in the churches of Galatia were elect because we already read it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and the first two verses. He gave himself for our sins. Thus he suffered the price that God demanded in payment for what we had done against the law of God. Bless and praise his holy name. This is how all apostles should start. And all sermons should eventually get to the place where we thank the God of heaven for Jesus Christ giving Himself for our sins. Because if He didn't give Himself for our sins, you will give yourself for your sins under the mighty hand of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for humbling Yourself and agreeing to do the will of your Father in heaven and taking that cup. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, that's a long sentence, and you may have got lost in it, but you ought to go read it and think about it and meditate upon it. With strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And he was here, he was heard, because he feared God. And though he were a son, he still obeyed and went to the cross, even though his father heard his strong crying and tears, He gave Himself for our sins. And that is why we're assembled together today. Because He gave Himself for our sins. And He is is the, the head and the cornerstone of our church. Because He gave Himself for our sins. He is the bishop of our souls and our apostle and the high priest of our profession. Because He gave Himself for our sins. That He might deliver us from this present evil world. And that might there is not... A perchance event is for the purpose of delivering us from this present evil world. And by dying for us and paying for our sins, He has delivered us from this present evil world. In all the ways that you want to imagine, He delivered us legally from this present evil world by putting His righteousness upon us. He delivered us practically by paving the road for us to hear the gospel that we have been delivered from this present evil world. He paid the price for us to be born again so that we would be delivered from this present evil world vitally. And brethren, there's a day coming when this present evil world will be destroyed under the fiery judgment of God and His angels. 
And He's delivered us from that. By giving Himself for our sins. And why would He do all that? Why was the Son of God made of the Virgin Mary? Why? The last part of this fourth verse tells us, according to the will of God and our Father. Amen. Amen. You can't read the Bible if you'll read it plainly without seeing the will of God being the fountain and the source and the origin of all our blessings in Jesus Christ. Notice what this verse is telling us. It says that Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins, that we might be delivered from this present evil world, and you can look at that deliverance in any phase you want to, because the rest of the New Testament tells us it's true of all of them. But it was according to the will of God and our Father. It was the will of God that Jesus Christ came into this world. And it was the will of God that Jesus Christ would lose none of those that God had given Him. And it was the will of God that the Holy Spirit moves in time and regenerates us to have a nature of a child of God. But it was according to God's will and our Father. Thank you, Lord, for exercising your will on our behalf. If the God of heaven has not willed it, how shall it come to pass? But if the God of heaven has willed it, who can stop it? And who can say, what doest thou? This is how Paul begins... And you know, when after you've had a couple of verses like 3 and 4, there's only one thing to do in verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. amen. When was the last time you wrote a letter to somebody and you had to use the word amen in it? Because you had said something so weighty about the glory of God and that you had praised Him. Here's Paul. Is this the only time you think in the New Testament that Paul had to use an amen in a personal letter? Oh, no. To whom be pray glory forever and ever. Why is He worthy of such glory? Because of the grace He gives. Because of the peace He gives. Because Jesus died for our sins. And because it was all according to the will of God that we would be delivered from this present evil world. Death is stamped upon every one of us because of what we did in Eden. But we've been delivered from that. Because He gave Himself for us. According to the will of God. This is what we preach and believe every Sunday. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You should love the fifth verse of that song we sang this morning. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, about adoring Him. Do you adore the God of heaven who exercised His will and choice on your behalf and sent Jesus Christ to die for you? Amen. And the Apostle ends his salutation and introduction and reaches for his carpenter's tool bag and pulls out a hammer. And he reaches for his welding equipment and pulls out a fire. Because he needs to deal with some false teachers and you are about to hit a couple of the verses with the strongest language that Paul ever uses in the New Testament. I would not want to be a priest of Rome with understanding. There aren't any. But I wouldn't want to be a priest of Rome with understanding and read the next few verses. Because if anyone has ever preached a gospel different than the Apostle Paul, it's the Church of Rome. And them adding their sacramentalism to everything that Jesus Christ did. Verse 6, I marvel 
I marvel that ye are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. You know, the apostle's rather kind here. He says, I marvel. He doesn't say, I'm angry. He says, I marvel. He's shocked. He's surprised. He's astonished at how quickly they have left the gospel that he preached to them and how quickly they had departed from the God that called them into that gospel. He's also kind in using the word removed because that's a, that's a passive verb, meaning that they were removed by others instead of saying, I'm angry that you have rejected the God that called you into the gospel of Christ. So he shows a little bit of kindness by saying, I marvel that ye are so soon removed, putting the blame on the false teachers that had bewitched them, as we'll read in chapter 3, verse 1. So there's a little kindness here, but he's getting tough. He starts right out by addressing the problem. He didn't start out by tiptoeing into the message of this epistle by putting the material in chapters 5 and 6 first. He starts right out as soon as he got his salutation over with, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And now it's time for business. I marvel. I can't believe. I'm astonished. I'm shocked that ye are so soon removed from Him, and that is God the Father, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Brethren, this ought to cause us to tremble a little bit. If churches and saints taught by the Apostle Paul could be quickly removed from the gospel to another gospel, we can be quickly removed if it's not for His grace. And as we look around, they've been removed. We must pray for God to save us. We must dedicate ourselves to hold fast what we've been taught. We must dedicate ourselves to defend what we've been taught. Don't you ever let anything come out of this pulpit that is not according to God's Word. Call the man's hand that's in the pulpit. Search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. I marvel, and it ought to cause us to tremble. If those taught by Paul could be so quickly removed, we can go the way of all most other churches ourselves. Now he said the words, another gospel in verse 6, he corrects himself in verse 7, because he was just getting their attention, which is not another. There is not another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. There is only one gospel. There is one faith that was once delivered to the saints. There is one. We do not allow a whole conglomeration of faiths or a whole conglomeration of Gospels. There is another Gospel, and another Jesus, and another Spirit. But they are of the devil in Second Corinthians chapter 11. They are not of God. There is only one Gospel, one doctrine, one faith, one baptism that is of God. And that's the one we want to defend. That is the one we want to pray for. That is the one we want to seek for. That is the one we want to study for. Lord, help us. It's not another Because there isn't another. There is only one. I dealt with a man this week from the city of St. Louis on several, on exchanging several emails. His goal, and he knew his Bible rather well, his goal was to unite all denominations together to try to fulfill John 17. 
I wrote and told them that John 17 was only written about true disciples, not false disciples. They're the only ones that the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to be one. And I wrote and told him, suspecting, sniffing something from Rome, my last letter, which I haven't had a response to yet, I wrote him and told him there will never be compatibility between the true Baptist churches of Jesus Christ and the church of Rome ever in this world. We are totally incompatible. How can you unite Christ with Antichrist? And yes, I explained all of that in several paragraphs. But brethren, my point to you is not to tell you what I've done this week. My point to you is there is only one gospel. And we are not going to let Arminians destroy that gospel, nor are we going to let the sacramentalists of Rome destroy that gospel. We are going to stick with our New Testaments. It's not another. But there be some that trouble you. And there's the first reference in this epistle to those teachers that had come into the churches of Galatia and were troubling them by teaching doctrines different than what Paul had taught them and would pervert the gospel of Christ. See, anything different than what Jesus Christ taught by the wholesome words of the New Testament is a perversion. Verse 8. But, I don't care about the men that you have preaching to you right now. Now remember, this is a letter. Do you know how much God's ministers have to trust the Lord God of heaven to bless their efforts? He's at a great distance. He has to write a letter. He has to defend himself against teachers that are there in person. I know what he would say if he were here. He said, though no man stood with me, the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. It didn't matter whether he was in Rome before Caesar or being attacked by false brethren. The Lord defended Paul. And so here he goes writing a letter. And he says, there are some that are troubling you and perverting the gospel of Christ. And here's my position on them. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter whether it's myself or any of the ministerial brethren with me. If we ever preach anything different than what you were taught when we were there the first time, it's a perversion. It is not another gospel. It's a perversion of the true gospel. Let them be accursed. Turn them out of your churches. Turn them over to Satan. Give them over to the Lord Jesus Christ to judgment. Do not listen to them. Do not tolerate them. Do not coddle them. Let them be accursed. If it's me or an angel from heaven, these are ferocious words of an apostle, an inspired apostle. These are the words of God, the Holy Spirit. And this is how we ought to think about false teachers. There isn't time nor place for us to compromise with false doctrine. Though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. We cannot say that about our own selves, like Paul could as an inspired apostle. But we can say, if anyone preaches differently than what Paul preaches plainly in his epistles, let them be accursed. Verse 9, as we said before, in case you didn't get it the first time, So say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul would say in other places, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, 
if He is not first and the preeminent one, let Him be anathema, maranatha. Let Him be destroyed and judged by the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. You know, this language is not new. This language was first spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 27 when God arranged for the worship service of Israel to include six tribes on one hill and six tribes on another hill facing each other. And the priests would holler out, Cursed is everyone that setteth light by his mother and his father. And all the people would say, Amen. Do you know what that curse was? Anyone that speaks lightly to or about their mother or their father, let them be killed. They're under the judgment of God. Now, how's that for ecumenicalism? Yeah, Deuteronomy 27. I know you young people didn't like the verse I picked out of that long one. You were hoping I'd pick something like, Cursed be any woman that lieth down to a beast. But instead I got the one that gets you all, didn't I? He that setteth light by his mother or his father. But here the curse is on anyone preaching a gospel different than Paul. We come to verse 10. For do, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He compares himself here to these false teachers and he uses some difficult language unless you are used to looking at ellipses and trying to figure them out. For do I now persuade men or God? Was Paul really trying to persuade God? There's an ellipsis here. There's an elliptical understanding that we're to put on these words and the rest of the verse gives it away. When we read a verse, let me th- Proverbs 22 and verse 1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Something like that. Now think about it. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. There's no verb in that second clause. Where do we get the verb from? How do we understand the clause without a verb? We supply it from the first clause because it's to be understood elliptically. It's it's to be understood. You're supposed to be able to figure it out because it's not complicated. And we have that same case right here because the second part of the verse explains it to us. Do I seek to please men? Is my ministry based on the authority of men, for men, by men, to please men? Or is my ministry based on the authority of God, for God, by God, to please God? He's here appealing to the way that he is preaching. He is not lifting himself up as having some authority from men or by man alone to have his gospel obeyed. He is declaring that because my only goal, my only source of authority, the source of my doctrine, the object of my preaching is to please God, you better be listening to me. I'm no longer like I used to be and like all your teachers are involved in pleasing men. We gather that from the words now, And yet, because he says, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet, or still, pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. I would not be a true preacher of Jesus Christ if I was doing anything 
on the authority or for the pleasure or the approval of men. I'm doing it for the pleasure, approval, and authority of God. Verse 11. But I certify you, brethren. We would say, I guarantee. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are wonderful words. I guarantee you, Galatian brethren, the gospel that I preach I did not get from men, and I wasn't taught it by men. I didn't go to a seminary, and I'm not a pupil of the apostles. Jesus Christ revealed it to me Himself. I certify you. I give you a certificate of authenticity that my gospel is the pure gospel because it came straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus appeared to Paul numerous times. You had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle. Last of all, he was seen of me, Paul said. Now, therefore, I don't believe anyone else seeing him. Because Paul said, last of all, he was seen of me in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, Jesus Christ revealed everything to Paul that Paul preached. That's why when we come to 1 Corinthians 11 and we're looking at the Lord's Supper, Paul said, For I delivered unto you that which I also received from the Lord. How that the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Paul wasn't at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Paul wasn't there with the apostles around that table. How did he know what went on there? How did he know what was said there? How did he know the order there? How did he know the bread was to be broken? How did he know thanks was to be given? How did he know any of that? I delivered unto you that which also I received from the Lord. Jesus Christ taught him all of that personally. He didn't get it from Peter and James or John. He got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying in verses 11 and 12. And now he's going to explain that. Here is how it was revealed to him, when it was revealed to him, why it was revealed to him. He's going to give a short testimony about his previous life. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. You know... What I used to be. You know where I got my training. My training was not in the religion of Jesus Christ. My training was against the religion of Jesus Christ. And I exceeded most of my countrymen in my zeal against the religion of Jesus Christ. I was exceedingly zealous of the traditions of the fathers. I know the law of Moses. I know the doctrine and commandment of circumcision. I persecuted the church of God. That's where I started. There was a change that took place. And brethren, there, you know, we've, we've often rejoiced in the butts of the Bible, and here's one of those butts. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, 
but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Now, he started out by saying, I'm an apostle in the first verse. Not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And here's God the Father and how God the Father made him an apostle. This passage is not about salvation. This passage is not about regeneration. And it's been taught that way so many times, but it's a violation of the context entirely. I want to remind you of something you learned in English. They are called parenthetical elements or non-restrictive phrases. Yes, you learned it. Yes, I had to remind myself where, when, and why I learned it and what it meant. Whenever you have a phrase within commas, it is not necessary to the sentence. That's why it's inside of commas. They're as good as a parenthesis. And so when we look at verse 15, we see two phrases inside of commas. They are not necessary to the sentence. And if you will leave them out for just a moment, we can read the sentence with understanding. Verse 15, But when it pleased God, pleased God to do what? What's in verse 16? But when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me, and that was on the road to Damascus, when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me, immediately, my first reaction was not to go to seminary, not to get taught by the apostles. And I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I went to Damascus, spent some time in Arabia, and came back to Damascus. I wasn't around the other apostles. I wasn't a pupil of theirs. I'm not an apostle like them. But when it pleased God to reveal that to me, God chose me to be an apostle. God made me an apostle, verse 1. And now verse 15, But when it pleased Him to reveal His Son to me, that I should preach Him to the heathen, I didn't go anywhere else for any instruction. Because I I certify to you, brethren, all of my instruction came straight from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I didn't confer with flesh and blood on this level or on this earth. I was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, and He glorified. Now let's come back to verse 5. I mean, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 15. Now we have our two little non-restrictive phrases inside the commas, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. Both of those two little statements are simply describing the God that was pleased to reveal His Son to Paul to make Him a preacher. And the separation from his mother's womb is not being born. That wouldn't have meant anything to anyone at any time for any reason. Every man is separated from his mother's womb by God. But there was a separation from the mother's womb of Paul that was different than all other men. And it was the same separation from his mother's womb that Jeremiah had. God had separated him from the ordinary course of human life to be a special messenger of the Lord. And that is what it means to be separated from the womb. Let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah 1, 5. This is the Lord speaking about Jeremiah. Behold, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. That separation was Paul's ordination, Paul's calling. Paul's appointment and dedication by God to a special life as a messenger of the God of heaven. But when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me is the sentence. 
And that is the subject acting. In the commas, we have two little descriptive phrases. Who separated me from my mother's womb. From the womb, God had a plan for Paul. And you know what? God has a plan for you. His plan for you just isn't equal to His plan for Paul. His plan for Paul was to be an apostle who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. And that was not getting saved. That was called to be an apostle, as he says in all of his epistles. Just the way Jeremiah was. From the beginning, God had a plan for Jeremiah. From the beginning, God had a plan for Paul. If Paul were to be bringing up salvation here, it's utterly worthless to his point. His point is, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel that I preach was given to me by the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. God made me an apostle. I didn't go inquire of flesh and blood. It's all about his ministry. Not his salvation or his regeneration. Let me read to you Romans 1.1, and hopefully this will just drop it right into place for you. Romans 1.1, listen to these words. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Not called unto eternal life. Called to be an apostle. Separated unto the gospel of God. There's the separation. There's the call. Called to be an apostle and separated from other men to a special ministry of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15 means. Do you know what I've heard taught from that verse? See, those two phrases inside of commas don't have any relationship to each other. They are two independent descriptive phrases about the God that is mentioned there in the first part of the verse. I've had taught that Paul was born again in his mother's womb. There's no born again in verse 15. And there's no connection between those two phrases to force any logical relationship like that. There is no cause and effect relationship in Galatians 1.15. Those are simply two descriptives about God's relationship to Paul. When it pleased God to reveal His Son in me that I should preach Him to the Gentile heathens, I didn't go confer with flesh and blood because I was taught it by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God that was pleased to reveal His Son in me, He had separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to be an apostle. That is what the verse means. That's the sense. We're supposed to read the Word of God distinctly and give the sense, and that's the sense. Paul didn't go up to Jerusalem. To them that were apostles before him, he went into Arabia. And this is fascinating. Paul said, I was taught directly by Jesus Christ. We have to ask, does the Bible give us a hint as to where it might have happened? Does it give us a hint as to when it might have happened? Paul went on to Damascus. He was there three days and three nights, blind and didn't eat. Ananias came into him, restored his vision. He was baptized. He received meat. And then he began preaching immediately in the synagogue. Then he went into Arabia. Then he came back and preached again, and the Jews tried to kill him. But he was let down by the disciples in a basket and made his escape and went to Jerusalem and tried to join the church there, but they had never heard of his conversion. Now, if this man had been preaching for three years in Damascus, they would have known all about his conversion. So we understand that he was in Arabia for most of that three years. As he's going to tell us in the next verse, verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was converted, preached 
with the limited knowledge he had that Jesus was the Christ in Damascus, confounding some of the Jews already. But you know what? It gives us a hint over there in Acts chapter 9. It says, then when Saul had received strength. Well, what does that mean? Did he start eating protein shakes for breakfast in the morning? Or does that mean he'd been to Arabia for three years and he came back having been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what he was like when he walked into the synagogues the second time around? The Lord Jesus Christ had taught him by direct revelation. And this is the apostle of the Gentiles. This is the man that's writing the epistle to the Galatians. This is our apostle. Rejoice in God's mercy to him for us. I didn't confer with flesh and blood. I went into Arabia. And I was I certified to you, brethren, what I was taught was by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Then after three years, verse 18, I went up to Jerusalem. And that's what we had read to us from Acts 9. I went up to Jerusalem, tried to join the church there, couldn't. They, wouldn't, they didn't want me around until Barnabas came and confirmed my conversion. I'm just putting all that into this 18th verse so that you'll know the historical event. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. He didn't stay any longer because he went into the synagogue and began preaching in Jerusalem. The Jews didn't like him there either. And so they tried to kill him in Jerusalem. And so the disciples sent him off to Tarsus. And he's in Tarsus, and it's on that little map I gave you, until Barnabas went and found him in Tarsus and took him to Antioch, where he joined the church in Antioch, and that was his home base for his evangelistic work. It's not all in the same place. Boy, I wish it was all in the same place. I wish the Bible was written like a handbook. I speak as a fool. Do you know why I love the Bible the way it is? Because when God separates things like this, men who don't want to put any study into it come up with all sorts of things, like our brother Bob was alluding to earlier this morning. They have so much trouble taking two or three passages and putting them together. I hope that you don't have any trouble at all. Then after Verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Now he's giving very careful details here because he wants these Galatians to understand I'm no pupil of the apostles. I'm a pupil of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I was taught for three years by him. I did not confer with flesh and blood as to what my gospel should be. Jesus gave me my gospel. Verse 19, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Should I take five minutes and explain to you that James the Lord's brother wasn't really his brother? That he was really a cousin? That he was really a stepchild of Joseph? Should I go through all those explanations or should we believe the Word of God that it was James the Lord's brother? There's a, listen, when you go into the Bible, there is really only one reason you would ever say that this James is not the Lord's brother. And that's because you're trying to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary. When I go to Matthew chapter 13 and see the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the oldest brother is listed first, and his name happens to be James. When I read through the Gospel accounts, I find that those brethren did not believe on Jesus Christ. But when I get to Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, let me tell you something. After Mary, after Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been a perfect mother of those boys all their lives, when she came and told them between John chapter 21 and Acts 1 that Jesus was risen from the dead and she had seen Him, let me tell you about His brethren. They were there in prayer in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. It tells us that. Those brethren were converted. And because they were the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in two or three places in the New Testament, they are given an exalted place because of their close connection to Him. It didn't make them any part of being our Savior. 
but it made them special apostles. And that James became the head of the church at Jerusalem, and you can read about him. You can read him in Acts chapter 15, that when that council was to be decided, it was James that spoke, and everybody settled upon his conclusion. It wasn't Paul when it came to the church at Jerusalem. It was James. And so when it tells us right here, other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother, we can learn two things from that verse. James was a brother of the Lord, and two, he was an apostle. Uh, We're getting up pretty high in numbers of apostles, aren't we? It's not 12, is it? And it's not 13, it's not 14, it's a number above that. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, Now the things which I read unto you, behold, before God I lie not. I'm sorry, Mennonites, and I'm sorry, JWs, that we have an oath in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 20. Do you know that there are times where subjects are so important, and if you swear by the right object, you should swear. And Paul swore here to make a point that the gospel he was preaching was true, and the history he was declaring was true. And so he used an oath by saying, The things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Mennonites and Jehovah's Witnesses say you can't ever swear. They won't even let you swear in court by saying, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, that's what Paul did right here. Because when there's a case that's important enough to do so, and you swear by the only object in the universe worthy of being sworn by, and that is the God of heaven, it is perfectly appropriate. And so the Apostle Paul did it. And here he is guaranteeing again by an oath that what he was saying was true. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and that's why I gave you the map. He went to Tarsus. From Jerusalem, he went to Tarsus. If you look at your map, you can see where Tarsus is. It is a city right between Cilicia and Syria, and was unknown by face under the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. I did not get my gospel out of Judea or out of Jerusalem or from the apostles or even from any of the preachers in Judea. I got it from Jesus Christ. He was unknown by face, but he sure was known by reputation. Verse 23 says, But they had heard only, they didn't get to see me, but they had heard, and they had heard well, that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. There's the words, the faith, the religion, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which once he had destroyed, and they glorified God in me. The churches of Judea were not my teacher. They are not my supporters. And I am not trying to serve them or please them. I am only trying to serve and please the Lord Jesus Christ. They never saw me. I didn't visit them. But they heard about me. That God had made an incredible transformation in my life. Totally changing me from being an enemy of the gospel to one who preaches it and they glorified God in me. They glorified God in me. Those that knew me best, those that knew all the details of my conversion, those that knew my history in Judea, they glorified God because they knew that it was a work of God, that I was an apostle, that Jesus Christ had taught me, and that I was not just a pupil of the other apostles. I was not a work of men. I was a work of God. And thus ends Galatians chapter 1, where the apostle defends himself against his accusers and false teachers that tried to overthrow his doctrine of justification. Brethren, I ask you, 
Are you willing to glorify God for the Apostle Paul in preaching the gospel that we have believed and that has saved our souls from the lies of seducers and deceivers? And what kind of a training did he have? He had training from the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Second of all, I want you to, I want to ask you from this last verse. Is there anything in your life that men can glorify God on your behalf? Is your life so renovated, so changed, so committed to the holy things of heaven that when people that have known you in the past see you, meet you, talk to you, they glorify God on your behalf? If you're not that changed, humble yourself and repent today. And be changed by the power of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Brethren, brethren, this is history. Let's be like our brother Paul. He said he was a pattern. As was read to us from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's fulfill that pattern and be changed ourselves that men might glorify God on our behalf. Let them see our good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. May Jesus Christ be praised.